For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Well, we're looking at the book of Romans. And as we're going through the book of Romans, we're beginning to see a pattern that's developing. And we're beginning to understand something that God is doing. I mentioned this last week, but I think that it can be argued and seen in all the pattern of discourse and all the things that Paul is presenting and proclaiming as he brings the gospel to bear and brings its application to bear upon the church and upon the believer, his aim seems to be above everything else to solidify the believing church in a great sense of the assurance and security that they have in their salvation. For that reason, he must strip from them any confidence in their own moral goodness because there's no security in your morality. It's something that comes and goes and that fickly holds on to you and you hold on to it fickly yourself. But, and there's no salvation in your morality. And he has to strip away from them their sense of the superiority of even their religious standing and state because there's no security in their religious state and standings. They're secure in one thing. It's having put their faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ alone. Having received the gift of grace that God has given them of salvation through His Son and holding and clinging on to Him alone. And in that faith, in that laying hold of Christ, not in any sense holding on to their own sense of their own moral goodness, not holding on to any sense of their religious performance, but simply yielding themselves up to believing and trusting and putting their faith in Christ alone, that they are entered into this life and this assurance of great comfort and security they have. They're secured in a wonderful salvation. And Paul, in bringing that salvation before them, talks about the experience that they have at that moment when they believe in Him. They have, they have peace with God. They have opened this wonderful access into the grace of God. They have hope and, and rejoicing in the hope of the glory that is yet to come upon their lives. This change and this transformation, this peace they have with God, this great joy in the access of grace, this burgeoning glorying in the hope that lies before them carries them through even difficult trials and difficulties. They even rejoice in their trials and difficulties because those trials and difficulties give evidence and proof that their faith in God is not just a conventional thing. They weren't just joining some train of mass belief or confession of around them. They weren't just simply trying to buy a ticket into heaven. They weren't just somehow appealing to the pressures that were put upon them so that they could satisfy their neighbor or whatever it was. Their faith was genuinely and deeply in Jesus Christ. And in response to that faith, he granted them salvation and he had transformed them. And the transformation was so wonderful and so profound that it, it revealed itself in the midst of tribulation and trials. In the middle of their tribulations and trials, they discovered that what they delighted in more than anything else was their love for God and God's love for them. 
that what they wanted more than anything else in the midst of their tribulation and trials was not to be over their tribulation and trials. It was in the midst of those tribulations, in the midst of those trials, what they wanted was to know God and enjoy God and love God and experience God. We mentioned this now in two weeks, but we use the illustration of David, when David was driven out from Jerusalem, this capital that he had conquered and that he had set up his palace and his kingdom and reigning over all of Israel. And David goes through a moment in which his son Absalom develops a coup and sets up an alternative government and drives him at threat of his own life out of Jerusalem. And as David is fleeing, David finds a song building up in his spirit and his heart that there's only one thing that he desires, and that is to seek and find the face of God. That's to return to the tabernacle where he can inquire into the things of God. He doesn't want to get back to Jerusalem to reacquire the power that he was losing, to reestablish his throne, to gain access to all the treasury that he developed in his kingdom, to re-inhabit his palace. He just wants to go and find the face of God and seek the face of God. And so Psalm 27, oddly enough, is this psalm that David writes when he's fleeing Jerusalem. You read it. It's a song of triumph. It's a song of triumph. It's the triumph of a desire for God that only God could have placed in his heart. The enemy plays a trick on us. We do this ourselves. Sometimes we run these gambits in our mind of how we're going to live for God and how we're going to obey God because we think if we follow this equation, these are the things we're going to get out of it. And so our faith becomes, in a sense, a means, and our belief in God becomes a means to an end of our own satisfaction or desires or designs we have for our life. This happens even when we don't want it to happen. It's just like a calculation that kind of threads through our minds. And then we begin to doubt the real purity of our faith because of these things. Wonderfully, there's a day coming when the Lord Jesus is going to return and we ourselves are going to pass through a fiery trial in which there's going to be burned away all the wood, hay, and stubble. So just the gold, silver, and precious stone of a pure motivation for God himself will remain. We wonder sometimes, what am I constructing here in this life of faith? Is this just a... A straw house that I'm building? Is this a house of sticks? Is, is this just utilitarian faith that I'm using to get to my ends? And if you haven't asked that, you should. Because oftentimes it's how it manifests itself in our life and even in our prayer life. Wonderfully, God brings trials, fiery trials upon us. Those trials come upon us and they, they reveal, no, no. Bottom line is this. I want to know Him. I want to experience Him. I want to enjoy Him. I delight in Him. My faith is grounded in Christ who I've given myself to and I've received and He's transformed me. And, and that's our delight. And that's our joy. Paul's leading the Christians into this understanding of the, the confirmation even of faith that rises from them in the midst of their trials, just demonstrating that this faith has secured them in a secure state and standing and assurance before God. And then Paul now reveals in that situation, in chapter 5, he begins to help them explore and see how behind this saving work of God is not God just answering His justice for us and God fulfilling our need to be justly forgiven, but also behind it, motivating it all, is God's tremendous and powerful love for us. And so we've seen how, how God came to us and He gave His gift of salvation for us, which was the gift of His Son dying for us. And he died for us, Paul says here in this passage, when we were enemies. He died for us when we were transgressors and sinners. He died for us when we were ungodly and the image that God had stamped us on had been broken and marred and defaced and was a ruin. 
He died for us when we were, in a sense, spiritually in ruins. And yet when he came to engage us in our sins, and when he engaged us as enemies of God, and when he engaged us as this ruined, defaced, these defaced image bearers, broken in every way, he didn't actually come to us and meet us in that condition. Instead, our passage says he came and met us with this mindset and this attitude towards us. He engaged us as those who were without strength, as those who were just weak and helpless and those who were poor and pathetic and those who were sick and sore and powerless. Our need was a salvation. Our true condition was we were enemies of God. We were transgressors against God. We were defaced and ungodly. And yet God, in coming to meet that need, met us as just those who were without strength, weak. That's merciful. That's kind. That's loving. It demonstrates the great grace and the great mercy that God has shown for us. And it also should show us how wonderfully secure we are. If God could have addressed me as an enemy, if God could have addressed me as a sinner, if God could have come and encountered me as a ruined wreck and dealt with me in that way, because that's what I was. But instead, in that condition, God addressed me as just without strength and weak and helpless and needing His action and His power and His saving work. Now that He saved me, now that He's redeemed me, now that He's reconciled me, now that He's granted me faith to believe and receive this grace of salvation, how will He deal with me now? This is Paul's argument. He'll continue to be gracious to you. You are secure now in all the benefits of that salvation. It's all yours. That's the great message that's before us here. That's the great thing that he's bringing to us. And now Paul will, in a sense, pivot to this loving work of salvation to define it for us in a wonderful way. And the word he uses to define this salvation for us, this place that we've come to in which we've entered into this salvation, is the word reconciled. We've been reconciled. And so this morning, for a second, let's just consider what it means, what this reconciliation means. And the first thing that I'd have us note is this. And we're looking at verses 10 and 11 here. Let me read them to you again. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so the first thing I want you to see here is that this reconciliation is grounded in realized or a realized terms for peace. It means, really, when we say that we've been reconciled, we have to start with this. It means we were enemies. And it means that enemies were brought together and now have become friends. God loved us even when we were enemies. That's why he took the action to establish the terms and meet the terms. But in meeting the terms, he made it possible for us as enemies of God to now be made friends with God. We were, before this reconciliation, before God began to enact and carry out the terms of this reconciliation, we were enemies of God. We were on opposing sides. We were on the rebelling side and God was on the side in which he was against the rebels. The idea here is not simply that I was at enmity with God. The problem was just that I had a bad attitude towards God, but God was all love and God was all grace, and I was just turning my back and I was refusing him. That's not the idea here. Reconciliation is the bringing together of two, and he was at enmity with us. He was opposed to us in our sins. 
He was opposed to our sin. The Bible says we were facing the wrath of God. This passage even says we've been saved from the wrath of God. God's wrath and God's judgment was set against us. There was an enmity. There was a, a conflict between the two that had come about. God has taken up an action in order to reconcile us, but it, it, it implies that there's this conflict. And reconciliation implies that there is a breach in a relationship and that these parties are at odds with each other. Yet in reconciliation, something happens. God provides and then meets the terms of peace. And we accept them. Here are his terms. God says, I'll provide my son to suffer and die in the place of your sins. And I will give you his perfect righteousness in the place of all of your failings. And I will create and place in you a new heart, a heart that is predisposed to love me and serve me. And on your part, you will accept my payment. You will receive it. You will present your life and your heart to me for my son's recreating and he will fill you and flood you with his life and he will reign and rule within you and we'll be reconciled. And we'll be reconciled. And in the moment in which you accept those terms and you believe and come to receiving faith, in that moment you are graciously forgiven and you're reconciled to God. You're brought into loving union and fellowship with Him. God's justice is satisfied. Your sins are removed. His love begins to flow through you as you're brought into union with Him. His love meets and meshes in your heart. And what also meets and meshes in your life is His justice. His justice and love converge and are satisfied in your life. Our hearts are changed they're filled with a resonating expression of love for Him. Our resistance to God and our rebellion against God is turned aside and we become new creatures. Filled with a love from God and a love for God, we're reconciled. We're reconciled. We kiss and we make up. I like that idea, by the way, of kissing and making up. It, it takes me back to my childhood when we had fights with our siblings and when we got in arguments and we said things we shouldn't have said and we were angry at one another and then we were instructed by our parents to apologize and not only did we have to apologize we had to restate the apology until we got the tone correct you know you shouldn't just say the words you couldn't just say i'm sorry you had to get the i'm sorry right and and then after you apologized usually the parents discerned that we hadn't gone far enough in making up and so it was all right give each other a hug or kiss one another. And, you know, you were forced to do it. And then before long, as you're kissing one, one of them decides, you know, I'm going to really show them, I'm going to make, I'm going to kiss them even hard and I'm going to kiss them long until I make them uncomfortable. And then we're going to start wrestling and then we're going to fall on the ground. And we're going to be laughing and it's, it's all over. We're reconciled with one another. <laughs> and God reconciles us to himself. He takes us back into his life and we embrace and we know him and we experience him. And, and so when we speak of the terms of salvation and we speak of the outcome of reconciliation, we always speak of it primarily as a relationship, right? When we go and we bring the gospel to an individual and we are sharing the gospel with an individual, we tell them and we explain to them that we are not introducing to them and we're not calling upon them to engage in a new religion. We're telling them that we want them to come into a wonderful and new relationship with God. And it's true. 
It's true. That's what we're inviting to. And so the second thing I want you to see here is that reconciliation is brought about by the terms of peace being met, but reconciliation is also realized in the fellowship with God. It's realized in a fellowship with God. We read 1 John chapter 1. I'd like you to take your Bibles and just put your finger in 1 John chapter 1. And we're going to kind of bounce back between that and this passage in Romans in making our point here. And I want you to see something in 1 John chapter 1. I want you to just see what John writes in verse 3. He speaks of this idea of reconciliation that Paul is speaking about, but he uses a different term to give expression to the reality or what is born out of that reconciliation. He says in verse 3, That which we've seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly, certainly, surely, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, John's whole epistle here is written with one great theme in mind. It's the theme of fellowship with God. You can read it. The whole epistle of 1 John is all about the fellowship that the born-again believer has with God and how that fellowship it manifests itself or how it expresses itself. And these individuals were insecure because, as I said before, the, the Gnostics had left this church. They'd said they had found some and discovered some new knowledge that gave them a special advantage or position or relationship with God that they didn't have. And so they left the church, this young church, and the people began to ask, well, do I, is it true? Is it possible that we're missing out on something? And, and John writes and says, no, listen, you are the ones who are enjoying fellowship with God. He begins at that point. Listen, we've come to make known to you the eternal life, and we have fellowship with Him, and we're writing you so that you might have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, and then He's going to demonstrate to them how that fellowship is being manifested in their life, and it becomes wonderfully encouraging. It's a fellowship with the eternal God. We were born for fellowship. We were born for fellowship. We were born with a need for the security of relationship. From the moment that you were born, you were taken up and you were nuzzled into the care of your mother. If I were allowed for a moment to begin to go back and try to imagine, I just was speaking with somebody before the service here about things that I do at times at night when I can't sleep and I let my mind begin to race. Uh, what I try to do is I try to order my thoughts around something that are constructive. I'll just try to remember all of my experiences at a certain time period in my life. If I try to go back to my earliest memories, oddly enough, and I think about it, my memories are more of smells than anything else. This is interesting. If I go back and I think of my mother, my memory that comes to my mind is the smell of Clorox on her hands. Now, why? Well, I'm thinking it's because she was cleaning a lot of diapers in that day. They didn't have pampers in those times. If I think of my father and I go back to my earliest memory, I have memories of the smell of his aftershave lotion, English leather. Right? Aftershave lotion. And it brings my mind. I can smell his musty hair. And you know what that tells me? It tells me of an intimacy that I enjoyed as a little child, being drawn in and brought near to my parents. And I know what they smelled like. It comes to that man that way. Interesting enough, as John is writing about the fellowship that. He's offering and proclaiming to the believers that he's writing to that they might be encouraged and know the fellowship he enjoys. He casts that fellowship before them in sensory terms. He says to them in verse 1 of John chapter 1, 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, that which we heard, that which we saw with our eyes, 
that which we gazed upon and our hands handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and have seen and bear witness and declare to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was manifested, experienced by us. John is writing to them to invite them into fellowship and the very terms he uses are sensory terms. Sound and sight and touch and I'm sure John could also tell you what it smelled like to rest his head upon the breast of his Savior. He knew all those experiences and he was saying this was an expression of our fellowship with the one who was the everlasting life and we're calling you and we're inviting you into that fellowship. And when John speaks about these things, he's not merely talking about and when we speak about reconciliation or when Paul writes about reconciliation, Paul's not necessarily talking about associability with God, an ability to come up and just kind of have a casual relationship with God. He's not talking about just being psychologically at ease in God's presence. He's not talking about the fact that you can kind of go out and here's a person that you can just kind of stroll your way into his presence. That's not the point. That's not what he's saying. There is a vulnerability in our part because we are being taken up into the hands and we have a relationship with the almighty God who is powerful and mighty, but he is wanting us to know we're secure. We're secure in His presence. We can rest in His presence. That the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ has brought an end to the hostility. That we've been saved from sin and judgment, but that salvation is not simply a negative thing. We've not simply been saved from sin and judgment, but we've been saved to something. And the thing that we've been saved to above everything else, here it is, the thing that we've been saved to above everything else is fellowship with God. It's brought into a relationship with Him. So that when we witness to somebody again, we might share with them what this decision to come to Christ is like. And we might take them to Revelation 3, 19 and 20, where Jesus says, repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and I'll sup with him and he with me. And we'll explain there is the repentance and faith in which you accept the terms that God has laid down to be reconciled with him And in that reconciling moment in which you repent of your sins and you believe in what God has provided for you, you open your life up to the presence and the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ and you are brought into a life of fellowship and relationship in which you renew yourself in Him and you enjoy Him. Listen to the words of 1 John 1.3 again. And truly... Certainly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And I want you to see here the first thing that John wants those individuals to know is this, that this fellowship is sure. That's what we're talking about. There's an assurance behind it. Surely, truly, certainly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And there is assurance in this reconciliation. There is ongoing fellowship that follows this reconciliation. And so, in verse 10... Paul is underscoring the same idea of the certainty or the assurance or the truth that we are reconciled. If God reconciled, if if God initiated the work of reconciling us to himself when we were enemies, how much more now that we've been reconciled shall we enjoy the fellowship is basically saying, shall we come to enjoy the end of our salvation, which is fellowship? How much more shall we be saved by his life is what he says. See that word there it says in, in Romans 5.10, if you're going back and forth between our passages. So Romans 5.10 where it says, how much more shall we be saved by his life? The, the word there by is an unfortunate translation in the Greek. 
Because the word there is in. How much more shall we be saved in his life? The idea is that and having been reconciled to Jesus Christ and having believed in him, not only has Christ come into my life and I've received him into my life by faith, but I have been firmly planted into his life and I'm in him. And in Christ, I'm received. In Christ, I have access to everything that God planned in my salvation and that everything is ultimately fellowship with God. I have access to all that God has to offer me of himself because I'm in Christ. We sing the song, Arise, My Soul Arise, that was written by John Wesley. And there's a line in it which says of the Son, speaking of the Father to the Son, it says, He cannot, the Father, cannot turn away the presence of His Son. His Son comes freely into the presence of the Father. And here's the idea. I'm in the Son. God can't turn away my presence either. I'm secure. I'm assured in Him. And my salvation is open to me. It's given to me and granted me in full, and it cannot be denied me or taken away from me. So truly, certainly, certainly, our fellowship was with the Father and with the Son. That's the thing that's being said here. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing, and, and it's a shared thing as well. Paul says, we have, look, look at the we there. The we have been reconciled. If we, when we were sinners, and if we, when we were enemies, and if we have been reconciled, and the word we there, and I just want to say here that Paul is not just speaking to a large crowd of people and read that verse and say, I, I, I. Paul's actually saying something. There's a community of reconciled people that have been established. We've entered into a shared experience. This is not an exclusive thing. This is for all and for everyone who will come. And when they come, they shared and united experience. And, and that's what John says, right? He says, we write to you that you might have fellowship with us. And our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And This reconciled life is a reconciled life into a community with which together we enjoy and we experience that life. And not only that, it's, so it's sure and it's shared, but it's the same. It's the same experience. The reconciliation and the fellowship that John is saying they experienced where they heard Him and they saw Him and gazed upon Him and handled Him those deep sensory relationship that he enjoyed, he's basically saying, you can have the same relationship. You can progress into the same deep, intimate relationship. And that's why Paul says, we, we've been reconciled. Paul, you and I together have been reconciled. And we now in Christ have access to the same salvation. It's the same experience. It's the same fellowship. There's no tear of favor here. There's no person who somehow goes along in their life and so they work their way into an advantage position where they enjoy and may know a better experience of fellowship with God than the newest believer. So John goes on to write in 1 John chapter 2, and I think it's verses 12 through 14. He says, you know, I'm writing you little children, right? And then he says, I'm actually, I'm writing you young men. I'm writing you fathers. He breaks the church down into those who have journeyed with God for a long period of time, those who are in the midst of the fray, those who are new believers. Of the fathers, he says, I write to you because you've known him who is from the beginning. It makes sense. They've walked with God. They've experienced him. They've known him who's from the beginning. They've built their life around this deepening fellowship with him. And maybe you've been with somebody like that. You just know they've lived a long life and they've lived that life often, in the presence of God, enjoying His fellowship, and it radiates from them. That's their unique fellowship they have. And you think, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. 
they've been a Christian for so long and they've been faithful to him for so long and they've learned the life of prayer and they've learned how to enjoy God and he's writing to you fathers because you've known him who is from the beginning and, and then you read the next very next line it says I write to you little children because you've known him you've known the father oh wait the little child has access into the exact fellowship that the old saint and the old spiritual father has as well. There, there's no favoritism. There's no degree of joy and benefit and blessing. It's, it's given to all, to be experienced by all. It's sure, it's shared, it's the same. That's what John is writing about, and that's what Paul is talking about as well when he speaks about this, if we have been reconciled, when we were enemies, much more shall we enjoy, shall we be saved in his life. Experience the saving benefits of his life. Well, here's the third thing. I want you to see here that this reconciliation, uh, this fellowship, as it gives expression in our lives, at the heart of it, there is the expression of joy and praise. There's the expression of joy and praise. In Romans 5.2, take your Bibles now back to Romans chapter 5. And in Romans 5.2, Paul speaks about expressions of exaltation or rejoicing or boasting. And in 5.2, he says one of the great experiences of the Christian is that we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And here he's talking about this joy that floods over us as we anticipate the full outpouring and the full realization of God's glory when God reveals himself and we're with him one day. He's pointing us towards the future and the hope of that coming glory that will come upon all the earth when Jesus comes and he returns the Bible talks about that time when we'll see him. It says we'll be like him as he is. Oh, that will be glory for me. You see. When we see him, when we look upon his face, we'll know and experience an intensification of glory and the unfolding and the unveiling of the complete and powerful glory of God will be transfused throughout all the earth. And in that moment, the realized glory of God upon the earth will bring me into my realized glorious state. And at that moment, I'll be glorified with him in heaven forever. And we look for that moment. We long for that moment. And that's the final, I might say, expression of the, our salvation. So he says we glory in the hope or we rejoice or we, we joy and we exalt or we boast in the hope of that glory that's to come. And, and then Paul says, actually, we glory in tribulation. We've just talked about that. We glory in the trial and the difficulty because it shows us that the great longing and the great faith of our life, it purifies and demonstrates the enduring character of our faith, which was a character that was underlined and underscored by the love that God had poured into our hearts when he saved us. So we glory in trials as well. But now Paul says, in this passage in verse 11, he says, now we rejoice or we glory in God. First it says, we rejoice in the hope of glory. We're rejoicing the outcome of that day when glory will come upon the earth. And then it says, we rejoice in trials because of outcomes that we experience and things that are proven in the midst of our trials. But this passage just says, we glory or we rejoice or we exalt or we boast in God. Just in Him. No outcome here. No thing that's being produced. Just glorying in Him. This is really what our fellowship is all about. Great assurance of being reconciled releases us to simply take pleasure in God, to enjoy His company and His companionship with us. Although we might hope of a glory yet to come, and although we look forward to that full baptism of that glory upon us, 
Even now, we just glory in God Himself. Westminster Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? The answer to the question is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's what Paul's talking about. It's the beginning of a life in which we enjoy God. We sing our songs, and our songs are actually testaments. We sing our doxology almost every Sunday. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What are we saying? Enjoy Him. Enjoy Him. Enjoy the benefits of His life. The psalmist gives it all the time. It's a command. Praise the Lord. Let us exalt His name together. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. The phrases, not empty phrases. They're invitations to exercise ourselves in the end of our salvation, which is to rejoice in the Lord. And so Paul says, at the end of explaining the great, wonderful expressions of the salvation that he's brought to us, read the book of Philippians, and Philippians is the letter of joy. It's the letter of rejoicing. And you come to the end of it where he, he announces the salvation is ours, and he comes to the end of it and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Glory in the Lord. Well, we'll just close with this with some points of application. Why don't we do this more? Why don't we do this more? If that's what I was saved for, if that was why Christ died for me when I was an enemy, not simply to just stop the warfare, <laughs> but to bring me into fellowship with Him as the answer and the fullness, to know the blesser from which the blessings come, to not just uh, seek the blessings, but to know the blesser and enjoy Him. Why don't I do that more? Why is that not the resonating evidence of my life? Why, when the world is getting darker and bleaker and heavier and more difficult and more challenging and the world is recognizing it as well, why am I not standing out more? Because I'm not complaining of how bad the world is. What's coming instead is my glory in Him, my rejoicing in Him. Why is not the effervescent joy of the Lord bubbling up speaking out in the midst of the contrast of the age. This is the trial and tribulation we're going through. What are you doing with it? Here it is. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Through the Lord Jesus, glory or rejoice in God. Why? Why? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. So I'm going to give you three reasons. One is this. I think one of the reasons this doesn't happen for a lot of Christians is because they're insecure in their relationship with God. They somehow think of the relationship with God as a transactional thing where you give God what He wants and He rewards you with blessings periodically and you just keep working on making sure you give God what He wants so you can get back some benefit and blessing in your own life and He might be able to set some ray of sunshine upon you. But here's what we're being told. We were reconciled when we were enemies, when we were sinners and when we were ungodly wrecks. That's how God came to us. Now, as His children, we're secure and we're assured of the benefits of His salvation and of His fellowship. We don't go to God and transact and say, Okay, God, what is it you want from me so I can enjoy your company and your fellowship? No. He is ours. We are in Christ. We were these severed branches that were taken and grafted into the tree of God and His saving work. Jesus Christ opened up and cut open the wound of his side and we were grafted into him. And the branch doesn't say, now what do I got to do to get sap out of this tree? We're in him. We're in him. 
draw and we just live in the fullness and we rest in the life that comes from him and we're secure. Accept it. Accept that in coming to him and believing and trusting in him, believe it, rest in it, be assured of it. Stop trying to meet the demand for fellowship. You don't. You've gained it. Avail yourself of it. Rejoice in it. That's the idea. I think that's what Paul is bringing before them. Here's another thing. I think that we've misidentified the end of our salvation. Again, for many individuals, because they've misidentified it, for some maybe they've never even been saved. They thought of it as a way of gaining a ticket to heaven. They thought of it that it was to merely get them in a favorable position in life so that things would go better for them. Realizing their true purpose, it was to become better adjusted people. It was to put away the personal ghosts in their lives or was to somehow find a more productive direction for themselves to live in. And they didn't realize that the end of their salvation was the enjoyment of God. The end of their salvation was the pleasure and joy of being brought to the one who pursued you to save you for himself, to know him and experience him. And so as a result, they're not giving themselves up to and they're not directing themselves in the very focus and direction of your salvation. You were saved to enjoy God. You are saved to know him. You know how to enjoy a person. I think you do. Parents know how. You have your first child. You forget that there are other forms of entertainment because that little child is so entertaining. Even on your downtime, you just lay them between the two of you and you sit on the bed and you just study them and watch them and adore them and enjoy them. You know how to enjoy that child, right? In a sense, we're to place God before us. To adore Him and we're to enjoy Him in bed. I would recommend to you that on a regular basis, on a daily basis, that you find a place where you can be alone with God. I know it's difficult in a full house, but find some corner, some place where you can be alone with God. When you get in your car, don't automatically turn the radio on. Leave it off. Go into your closet if you need to, just for a moment. Turn your heart and your mind and set the cadence of your day in adoring Him and enjoying Him. The good and the bad, the difficulty, you have pleasures here, O oh God, for me to realize of your graciousness and your sufficiency in your life and your sovereignty. And cultivate identifying Him in your world with gratitude. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the fathers of light. Trace all those gifts back to the giver and praise Him. Trace all those blessings back to Him and praise Him. Worship Him every day. Don't compartmentalize your life so that God doesn't fit into any place in your life. And at any point in your life, you cannot do everything to His glory and you cannot be consumed with glorifying Him by enjoying Him, by knowing Him. We spoke about this in our Sunday school hour, but the whole life must worship. The whole life must worship. And when it doesn't, pause. Say, God, forgive me cleanse me and wash me. I was made to worship you. I was redeemed for your fellowship. One of the wonderful little examples I have of this, it was reading an autobiography of Andrew Murray, which was a very godly man. And I've told this story multiple times of a young man who saw Andrew Murray crossing a street in Johannesburg in, in South Africa. He's an old man. He's a well-known man. He's considered to be a great spiritual father to many people. And he's looking forward to greeting him when he gets on the other side of the street. So he doesn't cross the street. He's waiting for him to come across so he can meet him and talk to him. But Andrew Murray stops in the middle of the street and just stands there for some extended period of time before he starts walking again 
over across the street. So when he gets to the other side of the street, the young man greets him, and then the young man asks him, and says, I'm curious, why did you stop in the middle of the street and not finish crossing the street? And now, I don't recommend that you do this in the middle of the street. But Andrew Murray said, well, I suddenly became aware that I'd lost a sense of my conscious contact with God. I wasn't enjoying him. I was rushing through my day and not going with him. Pause to be with him again. <laughs> to let him catch up with me or me to catch up with God. Right? Enjoy him. Here's the last one. In order to enjoy him, you have to always keep the cross of our Lord Jesus in his saving work as the entry point into this joy. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were ungodly, Christ gave his life for us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us to reconcile us. That's the statement over and over again. He's not saying that to rub our noses in it. He's saying it to remind us that this is the entry point in our joy. If God did that for me when I was a sinner, oh, what is he going to do for me now that I'm his child and he saved me? Never forget the entry point of our fellowship with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It's pointing us back to the cross. It's the point at which at the cross, we joy in our fellowship and reconciliation with God because there the depth of God's unceasing love is poured out upon us. A river of love poured out upon us. Well, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Maybe for ourselves, it uh, calls for a different cadence in our life, for a rhythm in life that would beat out and march out and work out in sympathy with your presence in your life. Slowing where you slow, speeding up where you speed up, God. Walking with you, going along with you. Engaging the world through with you present with us. Looking upon it through your eyes. Looking over the fence to our neighbor's yard and our conversations. God, whatever. Enjoying you. Delighting you. Lord Jesus, help us to remember. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in reminding us. We were saved for your own good self. We were saved because you wanted to enjoy us and you wanted us to enjoy you. Enjoy him. So we praise you. Make that our aim then. Make it be a, let this be a source of refining, refining us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.